welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest in industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle, I'm a partner in the Herbert Smith Freehills IR team and welcome to 2023. Lucky to be joined today for our first episode of 2023 of Inside IR with partner Natalie Gaspar and senior associate Brad Popple. Thanks, Rowan. Hi, Brad, Nat. Good to be back. Great to see you all. Now, um, Nat, you're a regular on the couch, so everyone knows who you are. Brad, uh, we're fortunate enough to have you for your debut appearance on the Inside IR couch. Uh, Brad has over 10 years' experience in industrial relations, advising employers in a whole range of industries, manufacturing, transport, energy resources. So, Brad, very, looking, very much looking forward to having your insights on the panel today. Yeah, thanks, Rowan. My efforts at getting an invitation have paid off. (laughs) (laughs) Very persistent. Now, uh, we've all come off a bit of a break. Inside, I had a break over December, January. I mean, did you enjoy your break? Uh, It was good. You didn't uh, realise what a busy year last year was until you sort of took the foot off the pedal and hope everyone listening had a good rest because I think we're in for another big year for industrial relations practitioners. So. It, it is going to be a big year in IR and we're very much recharged, relaxed, re-energised and, and ready to go. And uh, we're going to kick off with uh, something a little bit different again on, on this session. We've, we've been spending a lot of time talking about IR reform and, and for good reason that remains top of mind for Australian employers. In fact, much of us have spent our Decembers and Januaries briefing boards, briefing executives, briefing CEOs on what the secure jobs, better pay, amending legislation means for Australian employers. And so it remains top of mind and there's a lot that employers need to do to get ready uh, for the implementation of that legislation. Some of it's already commenced, some of it we've got six, 12 months to prepare. Um, and so you'll be hearing from us a little bit more about that in, uh, over the course of upcoming episodes. But for now, we've said before, important we don't neglect the rest of IR. There are still a couple of provisions of the Act that haven't changed and uh, some cases that are running through the courts and the Commission. So we thought we'd kick off 2023 with a bit of a best of, a bit of a wrap, IR wrap, the top six issues uh, that we've come up with from 2022. Now, before we kick off, I just want to address the creation of our top six list. Now, it wasn't an easy exercise, a lot of subjectivity with it, and being IR nerds as we are, I think we started with our top 30 and uh, (laughs) gradually whittled it down from from there. But I just want to get ahead of it to avoid getting hundreds of emails saying, Rowan, how did you not include X, Y, and Z cases in this list? What we've done, I think, is focused on the cases that have real practical application to our listeners, IR practitioners and, and lawyers, that perhaps didn't get as much airplay in 2022 as they should have. So we've, we've jettisoned a few cases that, look, everyone knows about, JAMSEC and personnel contracting from the High Court, a few others of that ilk that we figure has sort of been done to death. So we're focusing on the top six that you might have missed but need to know about. So with that introduction in mind, Brad, I think you're going to kick things off uh, today with um, the first two issues of our top six, starting with a bit of a thorny issue relating to Greenfields Agreements. Yeah, that's right. Well, pretty early on in, uh, in 2022, actually, we got some interesting developments out of the, um, the full court of the Federal Court on Greenfields Enterprise Agreements uh, in the Busways case, with the full court looking at the question of what is a genuine new enterprise uh, for the first time under the Fair Work Act. And that's a really important question, of course, because 
Uh, Greenfields agreements can only be made with respect to a genuine new enterprise. They're agreements that are negotiated directly between an employer and uh, a relevant union. Uh, to provide some certainty about terms and conditions of employment that will apply at a new undertaking or project before employees are, are onboarded. Uh, and so in the, the Busways case, as I said, uh, the full court looked at this question of what is a, a genuine new enterprise um, in the context of what I think it can fairly be said are, are some relatively unique factual circumstances. Uh, the employer there, Busways, was a, a brand new business that had set itself up and uh, successfully tended for uh, the operation of a private, uh, uh, sorry, a public uh, transport bus service which was previously operated by the New South Wales State Government. Uh, and so it, it won that tender, it then went and made a Greenfields Agreement with respect to that enterprise with the TWU. Uh, it sought to have that agreement approved by the Commission and the RTBU challenged the approval of the agreement in the Commission and then all the way up to the full Federal Court on the basis that the enterprise agreement, the enterprise, the RTBU mm. said, was not genuinely new. Uh, and it said that because although Busways as the employer had not run a business of this type or any business before, uh, the enterprise was previously run by the New South Wales government. It existed. It was just being taken over essentially as a going concern by the employer. Yeah. Now, the full court agreed with that argument. Uh, and um, the, the analysis, Justice Bromberg wrote the, the lead judgment, Justice Wheelerhan agreed. I should say Justice Snaden also agreed with the outcome, but for different reasons. Justice Bromberg focused on the question of what is a genuine new enterprise. And what he said about that, it's quite interesting. I'll read the, the, the key passage. Uh, Justice Bromberg says that for, to, to be new, the enterprise needs to be novel to persons generally rather than merely new for the person or persons establishing or proposing to establish the enterprise. So that's what it means for the enterprise to be new. In order to be genuine, his honour said that um, uh, the, the enterprise must be substantially new. And so it involves this comparison between what existed and, and, um, and the enterprise that is proposed to be established. Now, that's a, that's a very narrow test, yeah. right? If you apply that literally, almost no business could make uh, a Greenfields Agreement unless it's got an enterprise which is really novel to society generally. Mm. Now, I think we all agree that it's a, a, a case that needs to be understood and probably confined to its facts. Um, because they are quite unique, but um, I still think this is a case that will be rolled out um, in the Commission to challenge Greenfield's approvals on the basis that an enterprise wasn't genuinely new. And I think it highlights the need for employers to be re really careful about setting up their Greenfield strategy and making sure the timing is right, the structures yeah. are right. Um, but it probably also means that the old practice that some employers would occasionally uh, adopt to set up a new corporate entity within their structure and then make a Greenfield's agreement on the basis that that entity had no existing operations. I think that that approach is probably not going to fly uh, now under this um, this busways judgment. So it's a, a little bit of a change in that respect, which I think would be quite important. Yeah. We don't tend to see too many Greenfields cases run through, certainly not the courts, but, but even the Commission, Brad, I mean, presumably on the basis that they're often not challenged, they're sort of done by consent. Exactly. So. And it's a useful reminder of this case, I think, to not just assume that your agreement will go through because that's yeah. what's happened every time in the past, to yeah. be really focused and careful on setting the structures up uh, appropriately. Thanks, Brad. It's a good start. Worthy inclusion of our top six, I, I think. But moving to number two, also some interesting developments in the right of entry space, mm. Brad. Yeah, and right of entry will be a hot-button issue, I think, over the course of the next 12 to 18 months with the, uh, the new tools available to unions under the Secure Jobs Better Pay reforms. Uh, they'll be motivated to come into site and speak to employees about industrial strategies and what might suit best at an enterprise. Uh, and the, full court, the, the federal court case of Austell Ships, uh, a judgment of Justice Colden, gives a really interesting analysis and discussion about what it means to enter for the purposes of holding discussions under Section 484 of the Fair Work Act. 
And what Justice Colvin said in that case was that a discussion, it can take a whole range of different forms. It can be formal, it can be informal, it can be for the purpose of conveying information, even reaching consensus or seeking an agreement to a particular issue. But importantly, what uh, His Honour said was that once the discussion moves beyond that and seeks to uh, obtain some binding commitment or pledge, it's no longer a discussion, uh, it's moved into something else and is no longer permitted by the right of entry provisions. So, as was the case in Austal Ships, a union official coming onto site to secure petitions uh, to use in a majority support determined application. That's not a discussion, that's something beyond mm. a discussion. Mm. Uh, in the same way, a union coming in to uh, recruit members, for instance, that would not be a discussion, that would not be a purpose that's permitted under 484 of the Fair Work Act. And so it, it's a reminder, I think, for employers to keep close attention as, on what happens when union officials come into site under a right of entry and make sure they exercise some control about what happens and that uh, the, the appropriate boundaries aren't crossed. And I think that, I mean, that case is currently working through an appeal process, is. is that yeah. right? We don't have a listing date yet. Uh, materials are being prepared at the moment, but I think we can expect it'll be heard in the first, uh, first half of this year. So it's worth keeping an eye on that one. I get the sense that on both those issues, we might not have seen the end of consideration of them. So there's two to watch there, which I think brings us to you, Nat. Yep. Issue number three, 2022 saw, again, a renewed focus on eligibility of unions to represent employees, Nat. Yeah, I think, um, so this is my vote and what, you know, Triple J, Hottest 100 kind of, <laughs> what are the, the top cases and issues for last year? Except now, we've got more listeners. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, now, union eligibility rules, if anyone's had the misfortune of wading your way through those, a, a couple of full sen uh, sentences and uh, commas would be often helpful because they're quite um, heavy to get your head around. This case um, in particular is uh, the CFMEU eligibility rule case, and that's a long-running uh, union eligibility dispute involving uh, Dulux. We actually assisted our client in running that case. The concept of union eligibility is an important one, um, and I think more so for this year going forward as well, because it defines who is eligible to be a bargaining representative mm -hmm. under the legislation, which of course give a whole host of rights and uh, obligations on bargaining representatives. So this case um, concerned bargaining. The CFMEU <laughs> um, uh, asserted that it had representational rights in relation to warehouse workers who were covered by the proposed enterprise agreement. The company um, said that it did not have that bargaining um, representative right because the union's eligibility rules didn't cover them. And it turned on whether the relevant workers were employed as forklift drivers or rather as warehouse workers for whom forklift duties was part of their role. If it was something like 94.5%, I think, Brad, yep. of their time was spent driving forklifts. Now, the approach that was taken in that case was, well, that's not enough. It is not a quantitative analysis of how much time is spent actually performing these duties. If it was, it would have been the case that the union did have eligibility to represent um, these workers, but rather it was more of a qualitative assessment of the nature of the work performed and the purpose of the work performed. So you're not necessarily a forklift driver just because 94% of your duties happen to be that, driving a forklift. Well, yeah. and, and what, what these people were employed to do okay. was um, operate in a warehouse. They were warehouse workers, they weren't drivers and thus properly categorised, um, there, there was no um, status as a bargaining representative in relation to that case. So that's an important one. It did go all the way to the full federal court. 
Um, and again, one that I think is going to be interesting to get a sense of for employers throughout the course of this year, given you know the, the scope of all sorts of areas, including multi-enterprise bargaining and the like in this space. So, Agreed. No, that's a good point, Nat, which um, we'll change pace a little now for issue number four. It happens to be one of Brad's favourite topics, so we'll try and, try and hold you back a little bit on this one, <laughs> Brad. Uh, but the impact of scope orders, what, what is the point of scope orders, Nat? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone, anyone knows. I don't know. So look, what... Can you elaborate on that, please? <laughs> <laughs> and the, the reason I say this, um, the case that we sort of led us to have a really interesting debate about that precise question, Rowan, is utilities management case. So. Um, in that case, the employer had issued a notice of employee representational rights to the status quo of employees who were covered by the previous enterprise agreement. So it covered two business groups, I suppose, two different quite distinct parts of the business, even though there were you know, similar sort of work performed. So it went for a big scope, so to speak, in elegant language. Um, Bargaining was quite protracted. After a period of time, the um, employer then issued separate bargaining representatives for, uh, sorry, separate bargaining for the two separate businesses because bargaining was taking a bit of time. Now, the union went to the commission and sought a scope application to require the employer to bargain for the broader scope that it had initially engaged. Now, to your question, Rowan, why do you have a scope order? Well, Brad, you and I were talking about it and what did we come up with? That, um, one, it necessitates the need to issue a notice of employee representational rights, which mm -hmm. formally commences um, bargaining. It invokes the good faith bargaining obligations. Now, in this case, both those things had already, had already occurred. In effect, there were three proposed enterprise agreements already in place. Now, those are magic words, those three words together, proposed enterprise agreement. They appear numerous times throughout the legislation. It's a really important concept and um, we, we could go on for a long time in relation to this on this vlog, but let's keep it short. So, there were three separate proposed enterprise agreements. Importantly, in this case, the employer said, well, scope is up for negotiation. It was still willing to say, well, we're going to bargain for a larger enterprise agreement. We're going to bargain for these two separate ones. What then happened, um, the Commission granted the, the broader scope application, as I said. Um, and uh, then there was the issue as to, well, what happens if you try and make an enterprise agreement with a different scope that's different from the proposed enterprise agreement. It might come up at the approval stage as to whether or not an agreement has been fairly chosen. Um, what was, um, the, the history of this case is then interesting because what the employer did was put up a proposed enterprise agreement with one of the narrower scope. And um, the union said, well, you're not bargaining in good faith. And they sought a bargaining order from the Fair Work Commission um, saying that that wasn't, um, yeah, it was, was capricious conduct. It was undermining enterprise bargaining and the like. So the, um, what the commission said in relation to that was there's nothing in a scope order that prohibits you from, um, from putting forward a proposed enterprise agreement. But what was objected to was asking employees to vote on that narrower scope of the enterprise agreement. And they said that by doing that, and if that 
agreement had been approved, it effectively neutralises the scope decision. It means those other employees covered by the other enterprise agreement wouldn't be able to, to vote and they wouldn't have their say. What's interesting there though, Nat, is I mean, the legislation when it comes to what does a scope order do, it's pretty clear. It's the two things you've mentioned, but there's, there's then the third, that um, it imposes an additional requirement the Commission has to consider on approval of the, on applying for approval of the agreement. And that is, it has to consider whether or not there's been compliance with the good faith bargaining requirements. Yep. Now that, that only gets engaged, that particular requirement, in the event of a scope order. Outside of that, good faith bargaining compliance are relevant. Now, my perspective, the legislature could have easily said, if they wanted it to be impossible to have an agreement approved that was inconsistent with a scope order, it could have imposed a hard barrier. Absolutely. But yeah. it hasn't. And, and you'll pick that up from um, the decision of Deputy President mm. Coleman, who was in dissent in that case, who, who picks up that exact same, same theme. If that was what Parliament had intended, it, it could have and would have well said that, and it didn't do so. It raises the question, though, like what, in terms of compliance with good faith bargaining, when are you complying with good faith bargaining and when are you not when it comes to advancing, continuing to advance a claim for an agreement that's inconsistent with the scope yeah. order? I yeah. mean, that's really the question, isn't well, it? This is dealt with in Deputy President Anderson's um, good faith bargaining decision, which came after the, the full bench um, uh, overturned the initial uh, scope case. What Deputy President Anderson said was that um, uh, there was nothing wrong with the employer utilities management seeking to uh, continue to bargain for two separate agreements. That was perfectly consistent with the good faith bargaining requirements, but where it stepped over the line was putting the narrower agreement to vote because what the Deputy President said is that essentially sidelined, as Nat yep. said, the scope decision. Now, um, what the Deputy President said about that and how you might avoid that consequence is essentially going to a ballot of all employees, not just the ones who are going to be asked to vote on the agreement that's, um, uh, that's you know, sought to be endorsed by employees, go to a ballot of all employees to ordain the employer's actions in going to vote on a narrow agreement so that everyone has their say as to whether or not the employer should be able to make a narrow agreement. And then if that's successful, then you go to yeah. a vote. So effectively asking so, them to choose, do, do you want the, the yeah. single large agreement or do you want yeah. the two separate smaller agreements, which, which in effect means that unless you actually get agreement from the workforce yeah. as to the different scope compared to the scope order, then you're always going to be in breach. Which is sounds like a hard barrier. It does really. because yeah. I mean, scope is a matter for bargaining. Mm. So that is like any claim in bargaining where employees can agree or disagree to that. And scope really is about the conduct of bargaining. Well, is bargaining proceeding fairly and efficiently? Mm. It, it, it seems to, to uh, rub, doesn't it? When yeah, you're talking no, about I think that's concept. right. And we're going to have to wrap that one up because there's a few more topics to cover. But I think it's safe to say that there's, there's probably room for um, more cases in relation to this issue. I wouldn't be surprised if there was further consideration of it. But it's, it's one to watch, particularly in the context of the new bargaining powers that we have under the new regime. I think that's right. Just finally, Rowan, I just wonder if this case was being heard after the reforms take um, full effect. You know, this is one that is ripe for an intractable bargaining dispute. You know, it's a good point. isn't it? Yeah. Now, it uh, brings us to number five of our six. And, and for that, I just wanted to talk about applications for protected action ballots, because uh, we know in order to take protected industrial action, industrial action has to first be authorised by employees pursuant to a secret ballot called a protected action ballot. And a Fair Work Commission order for such a ballot has to include 
the questions that will be put to employees as part of the ballot. And the Act makes it very clear that those questions have to identify the nature of the industrial action. So employees can decide, am I willing to take the action or not? Am I willing to vote yes in support of the secret ballot? So there's been much debate over the years about the level of detail or, or clarity or specificity that's required in those questions. And I think there's been a degree of inconsistency, I think it's fair to say, in the decisions of the Commission about that issue. There's really two extremes to the, the approach. The first extreme was the questions need to be framed in such a way that employees are capable of making an informed judgment on whether or not they want to engage in that particular type of action and enable them to give a considered response. Yep. So that, that line of authority has been used to require unions to perhaps put extra information in the questions they're asking or clarify ambiguities or deal with any sort of inconsistencies. At the other extreme, mm. the commissions basically said, no, that, that's not right. Um, the question drafting, it's essentially just a matter for the union. They can draft whatever question they would like. The only rule is that it be a question so it'd be capable of being answered yes or no in yeah. this particular context, that it relate to action that is capable of constituting industrial action as defined, um, and that otherwise that employees are capable of responding to it. So whether or not there's ambiguity, whether or not it might mislead employees, entirely irrelevant, mm. um, provided that uh, the questions aren't meaningless or nonsensical. Now, that, that's a very low bar. Let's call that the sort of flexible approach to questions. Now, in November 22, we had a full bench in the Curtin University case basically endorse that more flexible approach. Questions are a matter for the union. They um, are only not going to be permissible if they're nonsensical, not a question, or deal with matters that couldn't possibly constitute industrial action. So... It does seem that, I mean, influencing the content of PARBO questions is going to be quite difficult for employers going forward. But I just wanted to explore the practical boundaries of this because the, the case, whilst not dealing with these extremes, it does raise some questions about what the boundaries are. Mm. So let me put this one to you, Brad, Nat. Mm. What if a union, instead of the more detailed questions they generally put in, bans on paperwork and bans on operating machinery, etc., what if they just put in one single question? Do employees endorse the taking of the following? And then copy and paste section 19 from the Act, mm. the definition of industrial action. Just drop it in there, very general words. Uh, bans on the performance yeah. of work, on restrictions on the uh, uh, restrictions limiting or delaying the performance of work, banning, limiting or restricting work. Mm. So we just refer to work. We don't describe what work, what type of work. Mm. Now, would that be sufficient to constitute just identifying the, the nature of the action, the type of industrial action, the sort of industrial action, because that's all the full bench requires. Mm. On one view, yes, that's enough. Mm. It's asking employees about industrial action. It's asking them about the sort. It's different types. There's bans, there's restrictions, there's stoppages. Um, now, if that's enough, then why doesn't every union just do that every time? Forget all this extra detail that people put in, what types of machinery and how long the stoppages are and all of those things. Well, it's certainly consistent with the authorities that say a question that simply asks employees whether they endorse industrial action in the form of a parcel work ban is, is acceptable. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, so uh, again, on the current authorities, that's probably an acceptable approach, but it really does defeat the purpose of a secret ballot, doesn't it? 
Um, so it's an area that I think is perhaps ripe for a, yeah. a challenge. And I should look to reinforce the full bench wasn't dealing with that particular factual scenario. The, the questions were a lot more specific. Um, but it, it does raise the question about the boundaries. Now, if you, if you form the view that, well, no, the Commission or Court's likely to say, well, just pasting the generic definition of industrial action is not sufficient, it doesn't identify the sort or nature or type, well, then raises another question, where's the line to be drawn? Mm. And that's not clear on the basis of, of that decision, keeping in mind it wasn't dealing with those facts. So anyway, I think there's, there's possibly room for some further consideration of this particular issue. But in the meantime, I still think it's worthwhile for employers to give close scrutiny to the questions being proposed on a protected action ballot order application. Yeah. And to the extent there's ambiguity, I mean, try and clarify it with the union. You might get some sense mm. and have some agreed changes made, or at the very least, you're signposting that you may well challenge any industrial action notice that is subsequently given post the ballot when it comes time to taking the action. So yeah. I think all of those things are very useful things to do. Yeah. Which brings us to number six, our, our final topic. Uh, employers deliber deliberately engineering workplace determinations through industrial action. Now, there were two very big cases in 2022, got a little bit of airplay, but maybe not as much as it could have, in Switzer and Quenos. And both those cases, some similar facts. They both involved uh, employers who locked out their employees for an indefinite period of time in response to employee industrial action in circumstances where both employers actually wanted the commission to terminate the industrial action. Not just suspend it, yep. but terminate it so that it led to a workplace determination, the arbitration by the commission of terms and conditions so that it ended bargaining. Now, in, in both matters, the union opposed that. The union said no, to the extent that you find that there's sufficient harm from the industrial action that's threatened, then you should just suspend it. Uh, not terminate it because well, we want to continue bargaining. It would remove our rights to, to continue bargaining in order to terminate it. So in, in both cases, there was no question that there was the sufficient level of harm that was going to be caused yep. by the industrial action. That was effectively agreed. The only issue in play was whether or not, in this scenario, the Commission should suspend or terminate the action. Now, in Switzer, and I think the reasoning of the Commission is really important, the Commission preferred suspension over termination, same as in Switzer, because termination would have deprived the employees from the benefits of continued access to bargaining and industrial action. And more importantly, the Commission said in that case, there was evidence that suggested that Switzer actually locked out employees for the very purpose of engineering this outcome, engineering an end to bargaining, engineering a workplace determination, not merely just to impose the usual pressure, etc. And the Fair Work Commission specifically said that applications of this type to suspend or stop industrial action, it's about preventing harm from industrial action. Yep. They are not validly used in order to engineer bargaining outcomes to force an end to bargaining for other tactical reasons. And the outcome in Quenos was, was quite similar. The Fair Work Commission relied on the fact that there'd only been around six months worth of bargaining. There was evidence that maybe there were some concessions that might have been possible and the parties might have reached agreement. And the Commission said decision to terminate in that context should not be taken lightly. Now, why is all of this important? I think it's super important in the context of the new intractable bargaining jurisdiction under the Secure Jobs Better Pay Amendments, which kicks off in June this year. 
it's likely a similar approach will be taken. In fact, I think we've touched on this in previous episodes, that the Commission is not going to lightly form the view that reaching agreement is, is not reasonably likely. Um, rather, they're going to expect the bargaining participants to use the tools available to them, engage in industrial action, try genuinely to reach agreement. And I think the Commission is going to not look very favourably where the applicant seeking those determinations is the one that's responsible for engineering the, the outcome. So if a particular party is perhaps digging their heels in, they've set ambit claims with perhaps the intention of enlivening the Commission's jurisdiction to arbitrate terms and conditions, then I think you'll get the same outcome. The Commission will say, uh, no, I'm not giving you a declaration. You go away, head back to the bargaining table yep. and see if you can reach agreement yourselves. Yep. It's quite an interesting point because I know, if, for instance, in the Switzer case, the employer um, was quite upfront about saying that it was perfectly entitled to lock out with a view to obtaining um, uh, the termination of the industrial action. And similarly in Quenos, the employer was quite upfront in saying that if there was a suspension of the industrial action, as soon as the suspension lapsed, they would simply lock out again. And so in both cases, the employers were quite upfront about what it was that they were seeking to do. And so perhaps that's the learning in the workplace determination space, once we get to intractable bargaining determinations, that uh, a little bit more nuance and subtlety into the position taken to the bargaining table and to the commission might be uh, a better, better pathway through than um, simply just rolling out the tools. What also didn't help is that it was the employer's lockout that in effect they were seeking to terminate and it wasn't lost on the commission. I think in both cases it was said that, well, this is harm, industrial action, harm of the employer's own making and if they want to stop the harm, well, it's pretty easy, just stop the lockout. Yeah. And in both cases, I think the, the union, particularly in Quinos, the union made clear, made certain concessions about the taking of industrial action going forward, which opened the door for the employer to do the same thing and, and down tools on industrial action, but they didn't. Yep. So all of these things no doubt played very heavily into the outcome, but definitely worth keeping in mind when setting your own bargaining strategy and industrial action mitigation response in preparation for bargaining in 23. So look, there we have it, our top six IR issues from 2022 that you need to be across but you might have missed. Uh, feel free to email Brad with any objections about that list, anything that's missed, um, send him an email. And as always, we love to hear feedback from our listeners on Inside IR. So feel free to direct message or comment on LinkedIn or contact insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Inside IR.